0: Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium.
1: In depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto and Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Insider.
2: The banks are broke. And why are they broke? It isn't an act of God. They're broke because we have a system called fractional reserve banking, which means that banks can lend money that they don't actually have. It's theft from the taxpayer. And until we start sending bankers, and I include central bankers and politicians to prison, it will continue.
3: around the world. Gather around, it's time for another exciting episode of Thriller Insider. Today is Sunday, May 9th, 2021. And that's right, we're talking Ethereal Summit 2021. We cover this year every year, (laughs) and this is our third year covering Ethereal Summit. This year it's virtual, yet again. And uh, if you don't know, you better ask somebody, because (laughs) this is a, a collaboration of technologists, artists, startups, entrepreneurs, and investors engaging directly with the latest developments in Ethereum, blockchain, and decentralization. That's right. This Ethereal Summit conference speaks to a broad community of people who believe that the world can be organized differently. I know it might sound <laughs> kind of hunky-dory, but you have to realize the Bitcoin community and the Ethereum community are two separate communities. <laughs> they believe in two separate things. Uh, Thriller Premium and me, Carl Gonzalez, we don't judge, right? All, all we do is try to bring you guys, you know, an unbiased approach as best we can. <laughs> I try to, you know, really clench down and try to, you know, bring you the that unbiased approach. <laughs> but, you know, I do want to offer some clarity, though, because... You know, just from my vantage point, um, you know, the Bitcoin community tends to look at you know, you know, their sovereignty a little bit different. You know, a lot of us are are worried about what's going on with the Fed, and rightfully so, with the money printing, right? it's a little outrageous, right? And um, we, we look at a store of value as you hold Bitcoin, you know as tight as you can <laughs> you huddle it right you don't want to get rid of it because you feel like there's an impending doom ahead of us right but on the on the ethereum side there's not much of that on the ethereum side it's very you know kumbaya and and they think that this money printing is going to go on forever and there's never going to be a uh a collapse of the world economy and, you know, and everything is going to be decentralized and more efficient and democratized. And we're just going to keep going on and on and on and on and on forever. And Everything's going to be beautiful and wonderful and decentralization is going to fix everything. And Web3 is going to be wonderful and these tokens are going to solve everything. And Ethereum is going to be money and, you know, and... <laughs> And it's a beautiful thing. It sounds amazing. I want to live in that world. I just don't know if it's going to happen. But for this for these two days, <laughs> this is what they're this is what they're saying. So, I am not I'm not, <laughs> not going to get too in the weeds with all that, but this is what they're this is what they're this is what they're saying. So, this is what I'm reporting. So, I'm not trying to, you know, show one way or the other. I'm just just reporting the facts. So I don't want to hear any emails. I don't want to see any emails in my inbox these, these next two days when I report this because all we're doing is um, providing you know coverage of it, right? you know you guys you guys pay for a premium subscription. you want me to provide coverage of the ecosystem? Well, this is it. And actually the, actually surprisingly, surprisingly this year, they covered a lot of things, right? you know they use the word blockchain. Very fluid on this side of, 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 of the of of the Ethereum ecosystem. And uh, you know, they they use the word, you know, blockchain <laughs> all the time. Blockchain startups, blockchain entrepreneurs, blockchain investors, they they use that all the time. Yeah. And uh, there there is discussions around, you know, NFTs. ETH 2.0, DAOs, decentralization, business, investments, DeFi, finance, Gitcoin, Chainlink, Miami, believe it or not. Um, All sorts of things. Blockchains. (laughs) And uh, I'm actually excited to to cover this, right? Because there was like 10 hours each day of of ethereal, you know, nonstop ethereal, back-to-back ethereal... Ethereum, just news, projects, everything that you can, that you could want. And it was just me watching this, listening, taking down notes, you know, doing it for y'all. Really doing it for y'all, you know, thinking like, what is my, what are my listeners going to want to hear? What do they want to know? What are these, these uh, insights They're going to need. And I did the best I could, you know. So today I'm bringing you the highlights because I I, I feel like, and, and, you know, this is no knock on consensus because, you know, they're a great, you know, they're a great, you know, venture production studio and software development studio. And, I mean, they do everything now, right? They do enterprise. I mean, I mean, they even create their own developer tools. They pretty much do everything at this point. Um So I mean, it's no knock on them. It's just this, this, this they really need to spread out this conference. <laughs> they really need to do it over three or four days. I mean, at this point, because it's just too long, you know. And um, you know, it's it's just too many hours in one day, too much information, um, too many projects. You know, that that they're shilling in there and it's not a knock on them. I understand that they need to gain traction for some of this stuff. Um, I think, uh, you know, this is not a knock on Decrypt because I really love Decrypt as a media company. I think they're fantastic. You know, I think in this particular instance, they really dropped the ball, you know, on the on the virtual side of uh, how they handled this conference you know, the audio, I'm going to go ahead and say this in advance. I try to do as best I could to, to clean up the audio. You know, I, I you know, I, I pay for, a I pay for a lot of like, you know, noise reduction, uh, plugins and, and, um, you know, adaptive kind of plugins, you know, through audition that I ha- that I use to try to clean up this audio as best I could. So I apologize in advance, you know, um, but you know, there's just some of these audio clips that they they use for this virtual summit. I don't know what they were thinking. Like, I, I I guess they don't do podcasting or they've never done audio production before. But record locally, <laughs> record in advance. You don't need to do this live. You know, that would be my tips. If if anybody's listening from decrypt, like I I, I, I would be more than happy to share with you. You know, a quick, you know, Zoom tutorial, how you how to do this, you know, Um, like, seriously, it's not that hard. Record that ahead of time. Record it locally. Anyways, I'm going to stop complaining about that. But yeah, so just, you know, fair warning in events. The audio is not the best because of what I was working with. With all that being said. There is some Bitcoin stuff in this and i'm gonna play that right off the bat because i know there's some of you who only care about bitcoin and you're you're listening to this because you love me and you love hearing my voice <laughs> and you're like car uh i'm sticking with you right now because i have nothing else to listen to on a monday drive to work and i love you man and this is why i'm listening to this right now and thank you i appreciate you this is why you're, you're my guy or my woman you know so I'm going to start off right off the bat playing you the only Bitcoin conversation they had. Right. And and this is this is it was pretty it was pretty funny. Like and these aren't like, well, there's like one Bitcoin OG in there, but there's really not like any Bitcoin maximalists in there, I would say. Um, you know, they, they they're both like. Yeah, you know, whatever. But like, what I'm saying, like, there's still Bitcoin talk in there, and there's some. It's entertaining Bitcoin talk. So this goes on for probably about like 20 minutes, and it's entertaining as hell. You know, for for Bitcoin talk, you know. And and so what I would say is, if you're somebody who's who's into Bitcoin and 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 you're like, you know, what I'm listening to this right now, and I'm like. I don't want to, I, I really don't want to listen to this. I would say, you know what? Listen to this first conversation here and then eject, <laughs> right? Because after that, it's all Ethereum. It really is. It's all Ethereum after this. Um, but uh, this is why I want to put this at the very top so that way you can get your, your Bitcoin fix for the day, you know, and then tomorrow I'll come back. I'll have some some Bitcoin content for you. But um, But yeah, I, I would say overall... You know, Ethereum Summit over the span of 2 days. Eh, it was all right. Of course, you know, I would say there was a lot of NFT talk, totally saw that coming. You know, there was some confirmations that we we heard from Coinbase that, you know, of course, I was definitely right on about um there was other there was other talks about um you know, about NFTs that I had no ideas about. I was kind of surprised like oh wow, I didn't know that um Dow's was a lot of talk about Dow's, which was kind of cool. Um I think Olaf Carlson Wee stole the show of the day for sure from Polychain Capital. Um he definitely st- I would I would say he definitely had the best uh you know panel of, of the first day. Um Yeah. And so like with all that being said, let's go ahead and jump into the very first Bitcoin kind of panel here. It's called Wall Street Buys Bitcoin. It's with Ross Gerber, CEO of Gerber Kawasaki, and Melton Demirs, who's a hoot, by the way, especially on Twitter, of CoinShares. <laughs>
4: I mean, Melton, I remember years ago when you were working in comms at DCG, and now you have your
5: own thing. Hold on, hold on. I was not in comms, so F that noise. I was in investing, so excuse okay, you. Okay. I'm an investor. I'm not a marketer. Just, well, because now, a vagina, just because I have a vagina does not mean I'm a marketer, Dan. So please, Absolutely. Please, please, you. So let me ask it this way The recent she bull run, everyone says
4: institutionally driven, institutional driven. I've never We're marketed anything in my
5: life. Like, please. Yeah, look, at the end of the day, it's not about regulation, no regulation. Um, What it's about really is participants in the market, right? The word institutional, um, when I started in the crypto space professionally in 2015, nobody talked about institutions. We talked about retail users. We talked about SMEs. We talked about traditional fintech market participants. Over the last five years, you know, in 2018, 2019, we went through this massive phase where the institutions were coming. Everyone wanted to work with banks and large um, pensions and endowments. But when we use the word institution, I want to actually challenge the notion of the idea of an institution. Individuals are becoming institutions because of crypto assets. There are a few different ways that we might define an institution or an institutional allocator. Typically, if you're a FINRA registered representative, it would be on the basis of the asset pool, the size of the asset pool they command, right? If you're over $2 million in net worth, if you're over $5 million in net worth, if you're over $5 50 million, that's what qualifies you in these certain designations. And I would actually challenge the notion that institutions are macro funds moving into the crypto space. There are a number of institutions in the crypto space, including my firm, CoinShares. We have 5 billion in assets under management. Some of our peers have 10 billion, 50 billion, 100 billion. I think we're going to see over the next five years, trillion dollar asset managers emerging that are native to crypto. So I actually think crypto is changing the very definition of who the institutions are. And I will tell you right now, our most lucrative clients aren't traditional institutions. They're crypto-native institutions who are looking for products and services that bulge bracket banks, PBs, and other service providers just simply will never be able to give them. So I actually think what we're seeing is a redefinition of what it means to be an institution. And crypto allows for a much broader range of different types of institutions to participate. But as a result of the market just growing so tremendously. Crypto is now almost a $2.5 trillion asset class, right? That's really profound. And all of the firms who've been involved in its participation, I think, are going to be the institutions of the future. So I'm not trying to pander to pension funds or endowments, you know, who want to pay 2 and 20 for passive net long Bitcoin exposure. That's a dying business model. I want to work with crypto native institutions who are looking to do really innovative things on chain that weren't possible with all of the dust the old tools that bankers and PDs have. Like The world is changing. We operate in a market that is open 24-7, 365. Everything we do is 100% electronic driven. I have no OTC. We don't have people calling us. This is truly a global permissionless 24-7, 365 market. And so to serve institutions in this market, we have to reconceptualize what that means. So I just want to challenge that notion maybe as an opener, uh, especially since I have uh, you know Skybridge and then Ross here, they probably see the world very differently.
6: <laughs> it, it, it's not that I see the world per se differently than what you're saying. And I think what you're saying is very valid as we see this. But Apple is worth basically the same as the entire crypto market today, And so when you put into perspective the amount of money that institutions actually control and what that represents as an opportunity for Bitcoin and everybody in the crypto space, that's the way we look at it. We're a gateway for investors who invest in traditional assets that want to invest in crypto assets. We're not doing a 2-in-20 fund. We have a relationship with Gemini. We open up individual accounts so that our clients own their own Bitcoin, and we simply help them do it. We're the first firm to manage manage managed individual Bitcoin accounts with Gemini. And and every day we're working on this because it's still very challenging to do it. Um, And it's super exciting time because I think for institutions like ours, we're offering clients the future because I agree with the way you see the future. And we're transitioning into the old version of what an institution is into what uh, the new version of what an institution is. So I like to think that I'm the first firm or one of the top first firms to be doing this. So I agree with where you are, but that's not where the industry is. And now it's shifting. And, and, and I look at my firm and SkyBridge are the firms that are really the first ones to go all in
7: and say, we're going to do this. Yeah, I think what's very exciting about this moment, right? Is there's a ton of capital in in traditional pools, right? That goes from you know individual client accounts to you know pensions and endowments funds and, and everything in between, right? And so, you know, our firm and many others, right? It, it's we're, we're I think I think we will all agree on this call that that we're in the early innings of 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 what you know digital assets can be it and really what bitcoin can be right and I, and i think we are you know helping implement or you know implement that first allocation for you know thousands of our clients right i mean we own bitcoin in our multi strategy fund um, that has you know on an elective basis 15,000 plus clients right so like that's a pretty special thing right you brought bitcoin to to those individuals in a small way right it's a it's a it's they own that fund as part of their overall portfolio but you know they have a bitcoin allocation now right which is like a special thing, right? And I, I think we're in the early innings of that because there are many, many, many firms, you know, asset managers and wealth managers that just aren't there yet. I think that'll change. Well it's
6: it's like there. we're not even in the game yet, I would argue. Yeah. Like I mean, I can can't even tell you all the pushback we've gotten from the traditional institutions for what we're doing. I mean like literally they'll call us with like a hundred lawyers on the line going, what the hell are you guys doing? And I'm like, you know, see you guys, you know, and we've severed our relationships with some of the institutions or our current relationships so we can continue to do this because there's actually a pretty big movement to stop it from those traditional firms because it's really is a threat to their businesses. And, and that's, so a, that's when,
5: seven years for me, Ross, like of doors being, being shut in your face. I think part of it is let also- one
6: more thought. Yeah. So I think one of the things the OG people have to remember is that the vast majority of the public has no idea what this is. I mean there's still people getting Netflix discs sent back and forth to their houses. I think like 3 million people. So like it's firms like ours that are really introducing crypto to the broader masses and educating people even what this is. It's that new. And so I think that you know it's going to be a very interesting decade. For you know, firms like ours that are making that transition, and it's going to be a really difficult decade for traditional banks and broker dealers that don't get into f- the future of finance.
4: And guys, l- let me push you on this further because you know, to hear you guys tell it, it's a no brainer. It all makes sense. You know, while we were on the chat before it started, Meltem, you were saying, "Gosh, there are still people who are holding all their all their money in dollars. Don't they know about monetary debasement?" And I was just thinking, well, they don't. So Well, some of these people, it's as simple as an issue of trust, right? I mean, you know, I've been writing about this space since 2011, and and I noticed that with a lot of folks, the minute you mention, you know, it's not FDIC-backed, it's not banks, you're cutting out banks. The minute you open that door, folks say, well, I want nothing to do with this. It doesn't seem safe to me. Well, that's an easy one to to shut down. What do you say clients?
6: The FDIC went bankrupt in the financial crisis. The FDIC doesn't exist. That's a fucking fantasy. Okay. So let me, rule number one any promise the US government makes is a fantasy. We don't have any money. We have $30 in debt. So if the banks go under, if JP Morgan goes under, FDIC covers 0% of it. We saw this happen. It's just a fallacy. The banks are the worst-run institutions in America. They've been nothing but stealing from people from every way they can, from fees and this and that, and opening fake accounts. To think that that's some level of safety with your money is the biggest fallacy I've ever heard.
2: Ever
5: and so, I so, so, how many so
6: financial crises? How many have we had?
5: So, Ross, I would probably articulate that slightly. So I get really spicy when I talk about crypto. When I talk about banking, I think the really hard part, Dan, is most people, uh, most institutions in particular, right, they don't have to compete. They have a direct pipe to the money printer, right? If we look at what happened during the COVID crisis, um, all of the PPP that was distributed, banks were charging 5 to 7% on oh, that's it. Correct. So they have a direct, the way that money flows, it flows from the to the largest commercial banks, to smaller regional banks, to smaller payments companies and other intermediaries. And eventually at some point, right, after everyone has taken their little piece, it gets to the end recipient. And to me, I think the harder part is, is, and this is why it's called the rabbit hole, right? Like the crypto rabbit hole is a very real phenomenon. You start at the top and you're like, you start with a simple premise. It's funny. My dad said this to me the other day. He's like, I just wanted to buy some Bitcoin. And I ended up going on this like three-year journey down a crazy rabbit hole of understanding how money works, how the monetary system works, understanding the Fed, understanding banking crises, even like a discussion of what money is, I think at a basic level, the conversation we're really trying to have, Ross, Stan, and, and, you know, I think you've articulated this to some degree, is um, the printing press, right, which was the like one of the major technological shifts in our world that accelerated a, a, a big trend. What the printing press enabled was the separation of state and religion, right? What Bitcoin is enabling, cryptocurrencies are enabling, is the separation of money and state. And so I think at a fundamental level, what we're trying to do is a really challenging cultural and social paradigm shift that's just going to take a long time for people to internalize because change is really, really hard. Like, It's really, really hard for humans to incorporate new information. The fact that we use these little supercomputers in our pocket, like this took 20 years. So I I just think it will take a long time for crypto to work its way through the system. But really, what we're attempting to do is to me the most profound thing I can be working on. It's the separation of money and state. And to most people, that is unthinkable, right? Absolutely. It's it's disgusting, it's unthinkable, it's scary, it's messed up. They're like Wait a minute! It just completely shatters their perception of the world, and so for them to even acknowledge something like Bitcoin is a complete violation of everything they have ever been raised and taught to believe. Especially in America. Especially. especially in America. Yeah.
6: But you know, ironically, money started as gold, and it was stateless <laughs> when it started. Yeah. The only reason money became a, 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 an instrument of power. But the state was because they could make it that. And so when you go back to 1700, people fought over gold. It didn't matter where the gold came from or whose gold it was. So Bitcoin, and, and I said this the other day, you know, the U.S. dollar was really Bitcoin in 1780. OK, so if you would ask the yeah. British what they thought of the U.S. dollar in 1775, like like, they would have said it's fucking Bitcoin, what? you know, like what are these rebels making their own money? Yeah. Controlled everything. And they were like the worst people in the world. Right. And so it's like they they have slavery and they have killing and they have all this stuff going on. And it was like, you want to make your own money? So I don't see it being any different. We're just going back to when money was stateless and there's a huge power to that and that's this power shift is what you're talking about i hundred percent agree with that analysis
4: ross you go down that road and you say you know all these things it's funny it's almost hard to believe you were someone who a couple years ago you you know i know you like to shirk wall street but traditional investors, someone running an RIA, you know, a Tesla bull, you believe in Tesla, you believe in cannabis stocks, you know, prior to crypto, those were the two biggest investors we were known for. Now maybe that goes hand in hand with crypto, but Dan, if, if I kick it over to you with SkyBridge, I mean, you know, here's a, a traditional hedge fund in some ways, you know, then you have Mooch at the top and the politics, but in some ways now doing this Bitcoin fund have you guys heard from people, heard from clients who, like Ross was saying, have basically said, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing here? Well,
7: you know, it's actually really surprising because you make an investment like this and you're not, you're not sure what the client reaction is going to be. And I will say it, it's really surprising of thousands and thousands of clients. You know, I could probably count on one hand the the folks who have pushed back aggressively on the exposure, which is really, really interesting because I... I what, what I think that means is that, you know, folks are generally interested in it, but they don't know enough about it. They don't know how to put it on. And so you, if you have a trusted advisor that's putting it on, like mo- most of our exposures through our multi strat product, which invests in a lot of different things. So you invest in that product today, you're getting exposure to a handful of different strategies along with Bitcoin in our in our macro book. And so. So I think that client reaction, you know, says, hey, we're interested and, you know, we want to have some exposure on, although maybe we're not comfortable enough to put it on ourselves yet, which is the opportunity, which is the business opportunity, I think, for folks that are... That's what we're doing, access products. Yeah,
5: but I would just counter that and say this is also very US-centric conversation right now. If we look globally, we've been issuing exchange-traded products in Europe since 2015. We were the first asset manager in the world to issue... To a passive Delta One Bitcoin exposure. Um, We were the first to introduce an Ether product. Um, We've now partnered with 3IQ in Canada on a new Bitcoin ETF and a new Ethereum ETF. Like the fact that retail buyers in the US wanna access crypto can't do it through the largest channel in the United States, which is arguably the largest channel in the world, it's the retirement account channel, right? Yep. It's very difficult unless you go through someone like I'm Ross's firm and RIA or you go through Choice or another platform. Like you can't put crypto in your retirement account unless you're buying a product that trades at a massive premium or a massive discount. To me, the fact that like we haven't done anything to improve the state of market access in the largest capital market in the world is really shameful because the person it's disadvantaging is not the institution who's buying the product at NAV and then selling it to retail at the premium is harming everyday consumers and everyday investors and savers who actually need access to this opportunity the opportunity the most. And so in my view, like The U.S. just feels so far behind from an asset management and exposure perspective. The regulatory paradigm has been incredibly slow to evolve. Traditional asset managers and banks have been really slow to adopt and integrate this technology. And then the fact that a firm like HSBC, right, which has been embroiled in more financial scandals than I could even list here, has the audacity to stop their clients from trading Coinbase or trading MicroStrategy, which are equities that provide synthetic exposure to the crypto sector. It's just so incredibly, incredibly demoralizing. It's pedantic. And if I was a retail investor, I'm a retail, investor, I'd be pissed.
6: Yeah, but you're, you're, you're discounting a very important thing that we just talked about. You're talking about taking the power away from China and the United States. Okay. These, both of these countries are in a, a war for the economic soul of the world. And so when you're talking about HSBC, for example, that was just taken over by the Chinese, there's a bigger reason they're doing this because Bitcoin is a threat to China. It is a threat to our system in many ways. And the established players in these systems who are well deep in our government. Have zero incentive to see this be successful. It's an absolute threat to sovereignty. In old days, if you printed your own money, you would go to jail. And 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 they should be jailing people like they do in Turkey, right? And, um, and so, let's not jail
5: anyone, Russ. I don't right. like what
6: they- <laughs> if you're the government, think about it. If you're the government, right, you're losing your financial power to a bunch of rebels. Okay. And that's the way they still look at it. And so there's no incentive for them to help us. Every step of the way has been the opposite. We've had to overcome and innovate around the barriers that are being put in place to Bitcoin success. And that's why it's become so powerful, because the innovations made it better. So the people who ban Bitcoin make it stronger and they don't understand and they don't understand. So, and guys,
7: alone Bitcoin fund, I think you guys will, will, will get a kick out of this. Like, we there are certain banks that won't send client wires for subscription into our fund. So oh, we had that issue too, right? So, we had that wild. issue too. You know and and the clients like well what do I do we're like well you have to move those US dollars to another financial institution that's happy to send it but i mean that's crazy right its the clients right. Money. they want to send
5: so the
6: up like a- with a new form too they're like oh your clients have wow. to sign a new form to do this like the idiot like, so i don't
5: firm. have any of these issues i use usdc i use on chain <laughs> money that belongs to me it's controlled by my private key this is the future i haven't sent there a wire in like a year it's great <laughs> well
4: ask (laughs) You know, you bring up, Melton brings up Canada and some of the things the U.S. has failed to do. We are under the guise of the Wall Street discussion here. And I want to make sure that I bring up the question of the Bitcoin ETF. You know, Dan, we had Anthony on decrypt a month ago predicting that with Gary Gensler in place, we'll see the Bitcoin ETF approved. Maybe, but I do keep telling people just because he has taught a course on crypto and knows about crypto doesn't automatically mean that he'll be pro-crypto. The other question I would ask you all is now that Coinbase is public, there is all this talk about the Bitcoin ETF, but might some people who want to get exposure to Bitcoin without having to buy Bitcoin just buy Coinbase stock?
8: Yeah. Uh,
7: I, I would say so. Look, we have a we have a, an ETF in front of the SEC, as as um, uh, as uh, as you know. Um, look, I think we're still, uh, you know, we still think that, that there's a good chance it's a 2021 event. So, you know, we're we're hopeful. And then, you know, just just to be brief, I think yeah, you could buy Coinbase, but like you know, it, there's nothing like owning Bitcoin direct, right? And so, you know, I, I think if you have some investors that are just refuse to own it direct, right? then fine. But I think it's always right. best.
5: It. I, mean, I think the biggest opportunity, though, is retirement accounts. I don't want to you know, miss that important issue here. There's over $30 trillion of retail assets in retirement accounts. For most people, the value of their home and the value of their 401k are their primary nest eggs. So for me, the holy grail and the focus this year is I want to get Bitcoin into every retirement account. We're doing it in Europe and we're making good progress there. We have $5.3 billion in AUM. I want to get Bitcoin into every retirement account in America. I want to get into every retirement account around the world, especially in the face of growing taxes. People need a way to invest in Bitcoin through traditional channels. And if the ETF allows us to service the retirement account market, I think it should be the number one priority.
6: It will. It has and, to. You know, I, I actually have my own ETF in front of the SEC right now, too, which should launch very soon. We're in a quiet period. Um That being said, I absolutely think that they will approve Bitcoin ETFs very, very soon. And, And I think the reason is there's too much money in it for the firms not to have a product. And the SEC knows that by not having a regulated product, it just pushes more people into the unregulated markets. And so, I think they finally have people at the SEC who understand. But I think the main thing holding it back was liquidity, was can, if an ETF takes in $2 billion in assets in in three days, can they buy enough Bitcoin because ETFs have to follow certain rules and they're quite complex. Like now that I'm doing an ETF, I can tell you it doesn't work anything like you think it works. Okay. It's super complicated. It's not like you're just buying a stock. And so that's the part, the mechanics of it is what I think is held back because Bitcoin was such a new thing. But now that we have institutional owners like Coinbase and Gemini and many others that are huge multi-billion dollar firms, I think, and what Tesla has proven is that an institution like Tesla can go in and buy a billion and a half in Bitcoin, sell, and that's why he sold some the other day. Elon proved he's said, I sold two, 300 million in Bitcoin, no problem the other day. And he proved that this is actually a real asset that's liquid. And I think that's what the SEC needs to approve this. And, and, and so I, you know, we're kind of betting on this in the sense of whether it's in the next six months or in the next year, it's going to happen. And investors want to be in Bitcoin today, because once there is an ETF product, you're absolutely right. It's going in retirement accounts, like in every firm, probably in the country. The only problem, I don't think it's the best way to own, Bitcoin but that's that's my opinion
5: Agreed, but the large asset managers will have some of the resources to educate. And I think it's not just Bitcoin. We see a ton of demand for Ethereum as well. Um right. we seeing more diversification and investor appetite growing because they're getting educated, right? The fact that all of the bulge bracket banks are now publishing research on crypto is a huge step in the right direction. And then Ross, as we were chatting about in our pre-panel, FinTwit, right, is right. the number one marketplace for ideas in the crypto space. Um Thank this amazing conversation happening all day, every day, around the world on Twitter in public. Like, talk about an amazing channel that is just so motivating, so inspiring, so educational. I learn so much on Twitter every day. It's incredible. I'm all about it. Sometimes Meltem- I learn,
6: I don't want to be on it anymore, but you
5: know. <laughs> me give
2: me a,
4: favor. Only a few more minutes. But you mentioned Fitwit. I have to ask you guys, especially you know. Both of you, Ross and Meltima, I've seen the the trolls in your mentions. At this point, if you have enough followers, you tweet something about Bitcoin and you get all these replies. What about Doge? What about Doge? I have to get from all three of you your take on what is happening with Doge. Today I've got media asking me, you know, well, it's a joke, right? And I have
5: to say, yes, it's a joke, but the price is going up.
6: You want to start with this one?
5: I can start this one. Here's my view on Doge. Look, the whole conversation we just had is about money as collective fiction and collective belief, and this idea that money and state are separate. If a community of people get together and decide that something has value, all a market needs is buyers and sellers, right? If I have a buyer and a seller, I have a market. And the fact of the matter is, like right now, there are a bunch of people who are buying doge <laughs> and there's a, a market for it, and venues are listing it. So if we believe in the premise of permissionless financial innovation. like Who am I to deny Doge? I am not buying it. My firm doesn't offer Doge products. We're not publishing research on Doge. But if a community of people get together and they want to mean something into existence, just like we did with Bitcoin, by the way, the last eight years i spent in this community, we've taken something that no one believed in and turned it into a monetary network with over a trillion dollars of value, all through the power of belief and conviction. Like, that's what's happening with doge. Is it going to be long lived? I don't know, but doge has been around for a hell of a long time and it just keeps getting weirder. So in a odd way, like it almost kind of proves that if people get together and they want to make something happen, like this is the wild west of money, like have at it, not for me, but to each their own. I'm not judge, jury, or executioner. <laughs> Self
6: right? Yeah. That's a safe answer. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm a big believer.
5: Call out. out.
6: Well, you know, you you didn't want to say what I'm going to say, which is unfortunately, most people are going to lose money on Doge because there's no utility. And the thing about Bitcoin and, and since I've been involved with it now for six years or so. I think the challenge is building utility in the system. And what really helped Bitcoin take off this time was when Square and PayPal said, we're integrating this into our payment systems. This is really what's taking Bitcoin. And then with Ethereum, it was the NFT craze and the idea that the smart contract business is really going to be a fast growing business. So for us, we look at these assets and we say, where is the value derived? But when you look at something like Dogecoin or m- one of the many other, other coins that anybody can gang up and start buying, to me, it's musical chairs, it's Beanie Babies. You know, I was around in the 90s when, you know, Flipper the the, the Whale was worth five grand and everybody bought into <laughs> the Beanie <laughs> Baby community and Flipper example. the Whale. No, it was Tobago. It was Tabasco. Tabasco, the whole... The I had chocolate the moose. Tabasco was worth like five G's and there's people still holding Tabasco, hoping that it will come back. So Don't forget, when I say to Dogecoin owners, yeah, totally. Listen, I keep my beanie babies still because it's so important to remind yourself, like it's so easy to get caught up in a gambling game and that's okay. Okay. If you sell and make money, great. But for every winner, there's going to be a loser. And you have to understand that about trading, that for every winner of Deutsche going, there's going to be a loser because there is no utility being created. So over time, the ultimate result isn't good. And so I think... If somebody comes in and starts developing great Doge, you know, products, maybe it'll survive, but you know, let's be real. So I warn investors, remember the difference between speculating and investing. And as long as you understand that, you could do well with this Doge coin and I wish you luck. But I also own a lot of the MGM casinos and I'm in the online gambling business. I have no issue with people gambling. If they want to gamble, you just have to understand what you're doing. But look, I've told a lot of people this. If they're going to give it to you, why not take it? Right. So Cuban's very smart and, and and I like what he's doing. But, you know, it's also to his benefit if you're selling Dallas Maverick tickets to take whatever you can take because, you know, they're OK. You know. <laughs>
3: I mean, Ross Gerber, you know, just killed it. <laughs> he just killed it, that, that whole panel, man. And he's totally right, right? When you, when you think about the FDIC, I mean, they really don't back anything, right? I mean, they're backing it with more fake dollars. So, so it's, it's, it's like you said, it's a fallacy. And it's this lie that we're just led to believe. And I mean, that's just why I'm just bullish as hell. On Bitcoin, I mean these days. So it, it's good for the Ethereum community to hear that. Uh, I love that. They, I love that consensus and and decrypt through that panel in there. Even if it wasn't like the best Bitcoin maximus that you could throw in there, um, but you know the fact that they were just throwing some golden nuggets in there was you know it's it's good that these Ethereum people hear that shit. You know. Because they need to hear that. They need to understand, you know, what is hard, sound money like like Bitcoin. And because and, and, most of the Ethereum community really believe that, <laughs> like, that Bitcoin is just this, like, you know, pet rock. Like, they really believe that. So it's, uh, it's good that they hear this stuff because, um, you know, the, this, you know, this, it's just... Yeah, it's just this money printing is just ridiculous at this point. That's um, just what we're led to believe. Okay, so next we have up Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss. Um, this was kind of a surprise. You know, I had heard of Nifty Gateway, but I had no idea this was the Gemini guys. Um, I didn't know this was the twinsies. That it was their actual kind of um, NFT exchange. Um, maybe I had maybe I had reported on it. I just didn't just didn't stick. So this is their kind of um, panel where they're talking about Nifty Gateway and kind of how they see it kind of playing out, the whole NFT, which is very insightful because these guys, as you know, are market makers in the space. So if they say this is how it's going to go, it's a good possibility that this is how it's going to go. That matters, you know, to a certain extent, uh, unfortunately. And so if, if they control a lot of the capital... And they control a lot of the entry and exit points. Then it's it's going to make a difference if uh, if they think this is going to be a big thing or not. So uh, I think it's important to understand where they see this NFT space going. Um, And so take a listen.
8: Nifty Gateway is very similar to Gemini in the sense that Gemini allows you to buy, sell and store cryptos like Bitcoin and Ether, uh, whereas Nifty Gateway allows you to buy, sell and store NFTs. Um, So so there's there's similarities in the sense that um, there's there's an exchange and custodial aspect to both platforms.
9: And Cameron, what is an NFT? Give us a, a quick once over on that as well.
8: Sure. So NFT stands for non-fungible token. These are unique collectible assets um, that are sort of um, stored on the Ethereum uh, blockchain represented there. And Nifty Gateway sort of focuses on fine art and digital artists who um, basically build NFTs um, and sell them on, on Nifty Gateway.
9: Great. And I think in, in recent months, um we've seen NFTs and more headlines than I think anybody could count. Um, I I, am now answering instead of what is Bitcoin, I'm now answering the question, what is an NFT, I think more often. Um, But it wasn't always that way. In fact, you purchased Nifty Gateway long before uh, NFTs were in headlines. Um, and it, the, the, the NFT as a concept percolated around for years, even before you purchased Nifty Gateway. Um, in my conversations with you as part of our reporting for the, the cover story that was recently published, um, one of my favorite anecdotes was sort of you guys behind the scenes hitting the ground and trying to help Nifty Gateway happen. Um, in particular, uh, I, I love the story of the role that cold calls played in helping jumpstart Nifty Gateway. Um, one of you uh, was particularly uh, astute at the cold call. And I'd love if you could hop in here and tell us a little bit about wh- what you did, who you called, and and how that helped play a role in getting Nifty Gateway off the ground.
8: Sure. So one of the... So y- you're right. Um we acquired Nifty Gateway. Gemini acquired Nifty Gateway um, about two years ago, which in NFT land feels like a decade. Um, so much has happened even in this year alone. But one of the important things we, we we thought that would be important to the marketplace being successful was the quality of the content. So a simple UI user experience where it's as easy as opening up an account at Amazon. Um, also a non-crypto ex- experience. So you could purchase an NFT using the credit card in your wallet, which is possible. And if the gateway, you could also use ether um, in cryptos, but if you, you don't necessarily have to. Um, so it's the experience. Um, and then the content is king kind of thing. Um, and so early on, about a year and a half ago or so, I started stalking uh, digital artists or artists on Twitter on Instagram, I would DM them. Um, we'd come up with a list of really cool street artists or or, or whatever um, kind of creators, and the hit rate was was pretty good. Um, it feels like maybe three out of ten people responded. A little bit less were kind of interested to hear more in in the concept, but ultimately was able to uh, get in touch with uh, Kenny Sharf, who's a very famous artists who was contemporaries with Basquiat, he uh agreed to join or do a drop on nifty gateway early on and then as the success kept happening um the the cold calls started changing um so people started knocking down our doors a lot of the people who um i dm'd and didn't get a response from a year later miraculously uh you know, responded. They're like, oh, this was lost, or I found this. Um, Yeah. So it's been a similar situation with with Bitcoin. It's like, hey, Bitcoin's really amazing, you know, uh, and kind of we're pitching everybody about that and sort of getting a lot of no's. And then enter 2017, all those same people are knocking down, Gemini's doors. They're chasing us. Tell us about Bitcoin. We need to know. I think you mean 2021, Tyler. Uh, <laughs> no, no. What I mean is uh, Bitcoin's oh, Sorry, where, where everyone um, started chasing people in the Bitcoin industry. Um, I've been chasing everyone. Happened in like 2017. And that moment for NFTs really hit a fever pitch where all of a sudden we're just playing aircraft traffic control and curating the inbounds and that happened sort of the end of last year and into the beginning of this year. And, and, and Cameron, and you're doing my
9: job getting Tyler to clarify that. I appreciate it. Right, that.
8: right, right. And speaking of uh, years, I mean I think what what sort of struck us when we started to dig into NFTs about two years ago in our diligence around nifty gateway is we went to an art fair, a digital art fair. We actually bought a CryptoPunk. Tyler bought a CryptoPunk using the Nifty Gateway software back then, and we met the the founders of that uh, art art um, uh, project. Um, and and the sort of the energy and electricity really reminded us of Bitcoin in 2012 and 13 when we found it. It was sort of like this this secret that was hiding in plain sight, and we were just like, "Oh my gosh, we just have to be." building on this frontier. And we just knew pretty quickly that Nifty Gateway was going to be a really important piece of Gemini. Because when we started, we were very much sort of a Bitcoin exchange building into the future of money. And then with Ethereum, it's building in sort of the future of, of um, decentralized finance and Ethereum and that whole uh, space. And with, with Nifty Gateway, we're like, we have to build this bridge into the future of art. There's no way the offline world being so uh, not on the internet remains like the status quo. Like art has to move into this medium um, and and be represented via tokens on blockchain. It, it just sort of became very very obvious.
9: So uh, it is a, a difficult concept to wrap one's mind around. I think um, Bitcoin was difficult in the first place, uh, and and then a, a NFTs. I think it's a little bit easier because there's the the visual component, or in some cases, the audio component. Uh, that actually throws people off, to be
2: honest. Oh, does it?
8: Yeah, because they say, "Wait a second, anybody can view this art. I can just copy it or take a screen grab. Why is there value here?" And and they don't sort of understand that um, anybody can take a photo of the Mona Lisa. Um, in a loop um, but that's not the original and the the nft sort of authenticates and gives provenance to this digital piece of art and prior to the token, or the NFT representation, digital art, you couldn't really authenticate it or say this is the original, this is what the artist intended. And so it sort of makes the digital canvas viable. And that's really challenging for people to wrap their head around. And I think in the early days, even when we were talking to people in the art world, they just simply didn't get it because there's this whole complex built around art the physical art from galleries to uh managers to to sort of this this all the middle processes and things like that and when you tell someone you can actually uh assetize a a digital piece of art and an artist can go direct to to the the consumer um they 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 sort of really struggle with that with that element um so so yeah it's it's sort of I think maybe obvious to to the three of us and and the people in our world, um, but but outside of our world, uh, the same way Bitcoin was sort of not obvious to people in capital markets. They said, "Wait, right. money doesn't work like this." And you're like, "Well, what is money?" And then and then you start going down that rabbit hole and realizing that money is is a lot of things, and and most people don't think about it critically. And I guess uh, another couple of highlights that are pretty uh, proud moments from Empty Gateway is that. People who went on to sell the $69 million NFT at Christie's uh, established himself on Nifty Gateway. He did a first drop and then a second drop he did. He cleared $4 million in a weekend. And then Christie said, Hey, will you come and auction NFT here in the same lot as Andy Warhol? So it's a great story because Beeple was creating digital art for 13 years, but there was no way for him to really sell it. He never sold a piece of art because there wasn't the blockchain technology, which I think um, one way to think about this is it brings scarcity to digital art the same way that Bitcoin brought scarcity to money. Um, which is really hard because the internet brought us abundance. We can copy a picture infinitely software is easy to reproduce and ones and zeros are plentiful. So how do you create a fixed supply of digital money where people can't uh, print more um, or or sort of forge that? And so Bitcoin gave us that scarcity, right? In, in total, uh, a land of digital abundance and NFT blockchain technology uh, gives us scarcity with digital art. So you can actually create four corners to something. It's an asset. You can sell it. And because of that technology and the meeting of Beeple's career and its great story of 13 years creating digital art, um, that sort of marriage created the moment for him to have his drops on Nifty Gateway and then go to Christie's.
9: Now, I'm glad you mentioned Beeple, but in a lot of ways, I think some of the other lesser-known artists are even more interesting. Um, Beeple was already relatively well-known, even if he wasn't a, a millionaire. Uh, it sounds like he had a, a pretty stable life, family house, that sort of a thing. Um, not all of the artists that um, have have sold on Nifty Gateway are in that category. In fact, some of them were Barely making ends meet. Um, is there one story that jumps out to you about a digital artist that was impacted by finally having the ability to sell their artwork?
8: So I would say that, like all of people, people uh, may have been well known and somewhat established in the digital art world, but he was never invited to, to Christie's. And so um, I think there's a lot of really cool stories like Fuocious. Um, I think he's something like 18 or 19 um, with his proceeds that he met uh, uh, earned from Nifty Gateway. I think he bought his mom a house. Um, so really cool stories like that. Mad Dog Jones, um, Pac. I mean, they, they've they been doing stuff, uh, but I think not in center stage because you really couldn't, if you were a digital artist, you could get hired by a brand, let's say, maybe Nike or, or someone to do some uh, commercial stuff work, but you couldn't point to hey, this is my piece of work. You couldn't get invited to a gallery in Chelsea to do an exhibit or a museum. I mean, there's been digital art in museums and things like that, but like it, it, it again because you couldn't create a beginning, a middle, and end to it. You couldn't sort of package it. Um, there's been digital money before Bitcoin. Right. But because but before that breakthrough of decentralization um, of of the scarcity aspect brought, it really wasn't ready to have the fireworks that we've now seen. So I like to think it's it's this marriage of of the technology and a lot of digital artists that is created. Uh, this new sort of like art's been in galleries, it's been in nature, it's been on street corners, and now it's moving to the blockchain. So it's sort of the new canvas a nifty gateway is is the gallery of the internet, is like is the way we like to think of it. I like to joke that, that Times Square is the biggest uh, NFT gallery in the world. It just doesn't know it yet. So I one day we'll, we'll do a takeover. I was just going to say the, the weekend dropped um, a few weekends ago, and that's obviously a huge name. He he uh, did the Super Bowl halftime show. Um, and Tyler, you, you, I think you had a uh, few more names you were going to mention. Um, yeah, so Dead Mouse did a collaboration with Mad Dog Jones. I think Dead Mouse, I mean, he's a pretty very well-known DJ. And the really cool thing about that collaboration is that he provides the sound, sort of the soundtrack to the NFT, and Mad Dog Jones provided the visual nature to it. And so these are both individuals who are very obviously creative and talented uh, one more in the audio side of things, one more in the, in the, in the visual. And the, the medium amount of tease allows you to marry those together. So I guess the closest thing we had to that was maybe um, back in the day when we bought CDs, there was album art and covers, but um, again, there was, it wasn't like scarce. Um, and so we can actually create or creators can come together and, and build um Build build uh, this content in a way that um, other mediums you couldn't quite mix mix them together and mash. So, like you can buy a Warhol, but there isn't a soundtrack necessarily to that oil and canvas that now we've created with NFTs. So you can kind of bring bring these luminaries from different fields. build them together so it's it's a very different uh type of content so i think um I, i have i don't know that much about Binance's marketplace but i think that um one of the things that we found is is we really have a team or teams in nifty gateway building relationships with the artists and helping them understand the medium and and it's just sort of a little more simple a little more complex than just hey here's here's a place to sell things. Um, and I think we've done our team has done a really good job of building those relationships and, and fostering them. Um, and as Tyler said, content is king. So I think ultimately marketplaces will rise and fall based on the quality of art and/or content if they're in a different vertical that they provide to their users and the price discovery. Um, and so yeah, I think it still sort of remains to be seen. I think what you can expect from Gemini and Nifty Gateway is uh, more integration over time in the sense that maybe you can look at your portfolio in your Gemini dashboard or use Gemini to access your Nifty Gateway account. Yes. So uh, the metaverse is like a virtual world. If you've seen the movie Ready Player One, it's this idea that uh, it's this virtual world that you can go and do things kind of like the real world. Um, and in the virtual world um, that that we'll live in in the future, Um, you can bring NFTs in there. So you can go to a gallery and view NFTs, buy NFTs, um, and and whatnot. Um, Some really cool applications of virtual worlds that we've seen so far are Sandbox, Decentraland, Somnium Space. Um, They're very cool. Check them out. You can hang out with them. And obviously, NFTs, you can bring them from Nifty Gateway eventually into these worlds. So Um, sort of recreating the idealized world, um, but in the virtual sense.
3: Next up, we have the decentralized legal landscape, and this is where it kind of gets really interesting because a lot of this stuff is not talked about um, pretty much anywhere else. So this is kind of where this is why you go to conferences. This is why you you go and seek out this information um, when you do travel to these things is it's to kind of get uh, these one on one meetings with these people and, and to get to talk to them after these panels are, are finished. You can go walk up to them and get these interviews or walk up to them and get some more um, information about what they discussed. Um, and this was about the legal side of NFTs and, and, and how that, um, you know, works um, because this was a lot of, this is a lot of what happened, you know, post, you know, ICO in, in 2018 or yeah, 2018, early 2018, you know, during that time when, you know, we were going to a lot of conferences in, in that year there's just a lot of legal panels <laughs> about ICOs and stuff like that. And STOs back then, there was a lot of talk about that too. Um, and so this is what you're seeing now. Uh, NFTs are the are all the rage these days. So of course, you're going to see a legal panel on NFTs and they're going to talk about uh, who owns the IP for that NFT and do, does the person who buys the NFT actually own the actual legal IP of the NFT to do with whatever he wants with it and and how that, you know, stipulates to the artists and vice versa. So this is a panel about all that. And and I thought it was very interesting because, you know, as you know, there is a DMCA that passed in the the early 2000s. And and that affects, you know, what goes on now um, in the um, in the um, digital space. So it 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 informs one and the other, and as you know right now, Gary Gensler is the SEC chairman, and I'm sure there's going to be some laws passed during his tenure there. Um, um, so I think I think a lot of this will be kind of um, expressed here in the very near future. But in the meantime, we have Tanya Evans. Uh, she's the visiting professor at Penn State University Dixon Law. Uh, we have Marta. Belcher, she's a general counselor at Protocol Labs, and then Stuart Levy, Uh, he's the blockchain and digital assets of Skater and ARPs, um, to kind of discuss how all these NFTs work together um, and how they um, can kind of complicate and kind of streamline a lot of these um, digital assets and how they complicate art, in a way, and how they possibly could streamline it in a way with smart contracts it's complicated <laughs> to say the least but very informative because you'll definitely learn some things especially if you're a, you know if you're an artist or somebody who's looking to get into nfts uh, this could probably help you or at least at least you'll know who to reach out to i'll put all the links and stuff here in the show notes so you'll have um you have all that stuff here to you know to get in contact to these people okay let's take a listen
10: Uh, if it's not an IPFS, it's not your NFT. Um, and, and what they mean by that is, you know, when you're storing that data on the traditional web, um, it, it, it's really not yours. It can just disappear. Um, you know, the way that the traditional web works is it's like you want to tell someone about this really good book that you just read and you say, so, you have to go to the New York Public Library. It's the third floor, third shelf from the left, four books over. And so, you fly there and you get there, and that book may or may not still be there, right? Like the librarian could have taken it away, or someone's checked it out, or someone ripped a page out, right? And that's how the traditional web works. You know, you're going to, when you go to a web page, it's being retrieved from a particular server somewhere in the world. Um, and IPFS, uh, is, is like saying to your friend instead, oh, I just read this really good book. It's called Gone with the Wind. And they can just look up Gone with the Wind and, 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 read, and read the book. Um, and so um, the idea with IPFS is that it, it stores things, it uses this thing called content addressing. So you address the content directly using um, a, a hash of that particular content. So instead of referencing a location, you reference the thing itself. Um, and so that can be stored all over um, and you will just retrieve it from whatever the closest thing to you is. Um, you know, if that's on your computer already, if that's on someone's device right next to you, you know, you don't have to have things pinging across the world. Um, and so the idea here is, you know, there are all these new, uh, projects that are doing NFTs and that's great, um, but many of them may or may not be around in a few years. And and if that's the case, um, you know, you really want to make sure that this thing that you paid all this money for, that you still have that thing. And so the best way to do that, um, in in my biased opinion, um, but also I think in a lot of, um, of people's unbiased opinions, is to store it on IPFS.
11: It's not the the issue of fractionalizing an NFT per se, that creates the issue. So I can take an NFT and get a bunch of people together, and we all um, put our money together and we we purchase something and you know go off and 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 enjoy the work and then maybe resell it. Um, it's a matter of whether and and sort of how you promote the work, that you can create an investment uh, contract out of how the NFT is being promoted and sold. And there is a history um, in, the, you know, in the case law of situations where goods that you would never associate uh, as being a security, you know, whiskey is, is a good example of that, but being promoted and marketed in a way that turns it into an investment contract and therefore security. So it's it's I think what concerns people, it's not the NFTs per se. It's not even just fractionalizing them itself that creates the issue. It's that it's a space where people do A lot of creative things. It's a space that's moving very fast, Um, and it's a tripwire that you can hit if if you're not careful um, with how you're promoting the NFT on a going forward basis. Relying on a platform storing your work, um, you know, leaves a lot of large rights holders, you know, globally well known rights holders, a little bit uneasy. Um, the The challenge for them, and the interesting question for them, is they still trust themselves more than they might trust um, a third party platform, even something like IPFS. And that's the tension um, that exists there because their feeling is we've been around for decades. We have incredibly secure systems. We're not going anywhere. We have you know rights and properties sitting on our systems that are as valuable, if not dramatically more valuable, um, than even the NFTs. And and we are we're confident in our own ability. We trust ourselves, we're confident in our own abilities. And they have a reputation issue. So, you know, their perspective is even though that means that they're now responsible and from a legal perspective, now liable if something happens to it, again, they trust themselves more and they're concerned reputationally what would happen if a, a platform they don't control were to go away. And again, even if they could say to an NFT owner, Hey, it wasn't us, it was that third-party platform. We did nothing wrong. They know that's not going to get them very far because they're concerned about the reputation. So an interesting tension that exists already today, I mean, you know, we're, not, we're not that many months into NFTs um hitting what I'll call the mainstream, which is um, rights holders, traditional rights holders looking at NFTs, is a real debate as to whether they want to store the works themselves, because again, they trust themselves and their own security and their systems and and feel comfortable with that, and you know, can sell that internally, versus trusting newer platforms or you know, even IPFS, which is nothing again against the power and security of IPFS, but it's it's relatively new compared to a company that's been around for you know, 75 years, um, and that's a real interesting tension point: the, ish, the the intersection of liability and reputation, and and the newness of this, which I think is an an evolving story um, that we're going to see play out over the next couple of years. So what's interesting about NFTs is that it's a technology that is bringing together um, a lot of different stakeholders, a lot of different players, and you can look at it through a lot of different axes. So you've got everybody using the same technology ranging from digital artists and two guys in a garage band to iconic property rights holders, uh, well-known musical artists, um, entertainment, everybody using the same technology. Um, so that's one axis to look at it. The other axis is you've got existing works that people are now looking to create NFTs out of, as well as new works that are being created just for purposes of NFTs. So all of those things are coming together. The rights that you need to create an NFT is not so clear. And for if you're a, if you're a rights holder where well, you hold all the rights, so there are bundles of rights that you can hold if you're looking at it from an intellectual property law perspective, if you've created your own work, you hold all the rights. No one can tell you that you can't create an NFT of your work. However, in a lot of agreements and a lot of relationships, especially in the music industry, um, the entertainment industry, those rights have been allocated amongst a, different, a number of different parties. Um, the rights to promote something, the right to create merchandise from something. And so it requires looking at agreements that in ex- that are in existence that did not contemplate NFTs whatsoever probably don't even have something in the agreement that is similar to an NFT, and now sort of going in and trying to um, decipher who has the rights to create the NFT based on what those agreements say. Uh, What we are seeing already is companies very well aware of this new space starting to hardwire NFTs into agreements on a going forward basis. But in terms of existing agreements, it really is Again, not, and if if you're not the sole rights holder, a little bit of a case by case basis of looking at if you think about someone, uh, you know, movie studio studio wanting to take uh, an iconic clip and selling an NFT of that video clip, thinking about the rights that they have to be able to do that. So it's a very interesting issue. You know, if you're a lawyer um, in this space trying to figure out um, for a very uh, new application of a technology. In some pretty traditional agreements and pretty traditional rights, how those come together. So that's on sort of the um, IP or NFT creation side. I'll speak for a minute about the rights you get, and then and then turn it over to Tanya. Um, so the rights you get are sort of, are sort of interesting. And you know, Mark Cuban um, spoke about this a little bit you know earlier in the conference. So owning an NFT, you know, is owning sort of the collectible, it's owning the bragging rights it's owning the ability to say that work is mine it does not if you look at it from an intellectual property law perspective give you rights in the underlying work and that's true not just because it's an nft that's generally true so if you go and buy a painting you own that physical painting it doesn't give you rights to now create posters and mugs and t-shirts from that painting unless that right was conveyed to you explicitly So silence means you don't get rights in the underlying work. And you know, at at best, if you'll have it, these um, agreements are silent. But layered even on top of that is most platforms on which you buy NFTs not only say what I just said, but also include various other limitations. You can't commercialize the work, you can't fold it into a video you might be creating, you can't create merchandise from the work, you can't associate the work with hate speech. They add on an extra layer. That attaches to the NFT. And the question is: well, do those platform rights then travel with the NFT? It's on the platform, you've signed up for the platform, you agree to the terms and conditions. But as the work leaves the platform, do those rights, do those limitations on the work travel with it? And we're already seeing some companies out there developing sort of smart contract legal terms that would attach to the NFT sort of separate apart a little bit from the NFT, but attached to it so that those legal rights travel with the NFT. But the key takeaway is you own the NFT. You don't own the intellectual property rights in the underlying work you've purchased.
10: Thank you. Um, so, Professor Evans, what happens if someone misuses your artwork? Um, who can do what
12: about it? It's a really, Question and it comes up not just in the NFT space, but we've been grappling with this ever since the you know the boom of digital technology and the internet. And I think of the late '90s with the Napster and Grokster apps, and being able to create a perfect digital copy of something and send it to a thousand of your not so closest friends from the comfort of your home in your pleasant slippers, um, and then translate that into a web. world, and we have the same considerations, but some interesting ownership issues. As, As Stuart was walking us through, the difference between the token, which is your representation of ownership and ability to exercise ownership and control over an underlying asset. Sometimes it's physical, but sometimes, and we're talking today mostly on the digital side. That leads me to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. It's a jargony Thing uh, Most people will refer to it as the DMCA, and it's an amendment to the Copyright Act that gives some safe harbor protections to platforms, online service providers, if they do a certain number of things. One of those uh, things is to respond to a uh, notice and takedown request if someone thinks that their work is being infringed and even taking a step back. What are the bundle of rights that Stuart mentioned earlier in copyright specifically? That's the right to copy, the right to prepare, as we say, a derivative work, something adapted from an original. If you have someone who writes a book and then sells the rights to the book to create a TV show or a film, those uh, film rights derive from the original and then publicly display is capable of being displayed. And obviously, we're talking in the, in the NFT space or publicly perform that bundle is the bundle of copyright. So if someone is uh, reproducing or displaying publicly without your permission, you have some options. One of the things I hear is I'm just going to go, you know, community is strong in the space. I'll go on Twitter and and put them on blast. That's lovely, but that's not going to advance your cause. It may get the community to turn, but you should really be communicating with the platform to say, hey, that's my work. And Go through the process of a notice and takedown. The platform, in order to protect itself from some type of secondary liability for copyright infringement, would take it down. The other side of that, though, is that you have to have a good faith belief of infringement because it is a double edged sword as well. Users can say, actually, I, ha- I am using this based on fair use. And they too can make an argument uh, within the terms of notice and takedown. So it works both ways. Final point about Uh, not necessarily the DMCA, but aligned, is the Case Act of 2019 that was passed at the end of 20, or enacted at the end of 2020. And by the end of 2021 or 2022, there'll be what's called a Small Claims Enforcement Board or Copyright Claims Board. And so it's easier to protect rights on both sides both for uh, creators here in the United States and also for, um, for users as well, so that we have the adequate balance of protection when it's appropriate, but fair use when it's appropriate as well.
3: So next up, we have uh, Duncan and Griffin. Uh, they're both the co-founders of Nifty Gateway. And then we have D. Goins. He's the uh, co-founder of Zora. Um, they're talking about the NFT art boom that we saw here in February or March. Right. And then we saw it kind of, you know, kind of crash with uh, not crash, but kind of, you know, kind of go down here in April um, and then may kind of just it's kind of stable, I would say. Um, but. They're kind of just discussing kind of this whole movement in general and kind of what they've been seeing, you know, working behind the scenes on these platforms, you know, during that time and kind of how they see it kind of percolating, you know. And it's really it's really interesting to see it from their perspective because they have a like a, you know, first hands on view of what it looks like. From behind the monitor, (laughs) you know, seeing new users come in, seeing new creators come in and then seeing all that revenue come in at the same time. So um, surprisingly, and this is kind of I kind of already knew, but after hearing them talk about this, I didn't realize how how off chain they were when it came to this NFT um, stack that they were building for these websites yeah and then it was kind of, you know, at what scale, you know, that was. And kind of makes sense cuz they would have to handle all that traffic cuz they were seeing like millions of users, right? So it just wasn't like, you know, hundreds of thousands. So it makes sense, but it's kind of it's kind of interesting that Ethereum just <laughs> it's kind of it kind of reminds you of CryptoKitties Right. And how locked down that website was, you know, in 2017. Um, so I guess they didn't want that to happen again. OK, so take a listen. It's actually a pretty interesting.
13: yeah um about two months ago we were um you know we were approached by uh, Jerry's wife and daughter, and they had been wanting to do NFTs for a while. And Jerry had been an artist pretty much his entire life. Um, and he made line drawings, he made, you know, watercolors, uh, photos. And towards the, um, end of the eighties and the nineties, he started making digital work, like exclusively digital work on computers. And not many people have seen this type of work. It's been in galleries, but we managed to, uh, release a never-before-seen digital artwork from him that was made in 1990 and it's called GIFT. It's live on Super Rare now. Um, part of those proceeds are going to go towards, you know, the environmental um, conservation and the coral reef, which is uh, coral reef protection, which is something that Jerry pioneered for, you know, most of his life. So it's a beautiful piece. I, when I first saw it, I was like, I, I don't even know what to think. Jerry's been, you know, an idol of mine forever. And I was grateful Dead poster behind me. So being able to work on this was just, you know, a true, true honor.
4: Right on. So we were talking about art. And so the art world right now is looking at NFTs and assets, digital assets, and, and saying, okay, we'll, we'll try this. Um, some auction houses, I won't name any names, um, that have been around for quite a bit, are talking about the, how this movement is temporal, and is not going to stay and that the nfts technically maybe, maybe they're not art so how do you define art what is art to you and griffin i'll let you start
14: yeah great question i mean i would just say the newspapers said the internet wasn't important either back in the 90s and like i think we all know how that turned out so that's that's much more how we see it right like nfts are 100 here to stay and it really is about a lot more than art it's about a new technology that unlocks a fundamentally new human behavior which only gets more and more powerful as that compounds over the long term you know which is the exact same case with the internet like it started with people taking stuff that was up before and putting it on web pages but then you got like web 2.0 and people interacting and now the internet has kind of remade society in the world and it's this huge geopolitical force so yeah i'd say it's the exact same here art it, art is just anything that makes you think and makes you feel something and no one has a monopoly on what should be considered art and bought and sold as art. And anyone who does like probably just wants to protect their spot as a gatekeeper. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm sure they are saying stuff like that and it, it's tough to have the new technology pop up and challenge you, but NFTs are here to stay. They said the same thing in 2018. You know, it was like, it's almost weird. It's like seeing the exact same conversation play out all, all over again. Um, in 2018, Crypto kitties were were really hot, they were popular for a second, and then there was sort of a decline in in usage and interest. And you know, the I think sort of the the consensus, the mainstream opinion was NFTs are over. Like this was a funny idea, but this is never gonna work. And now here we are, you know, three years later, and on Nifty Gateway, there have been days where we we've traded more volume than CryptoKitties did in its entire life. And we're just one marketplace. I mean, that the same thing is true as of many other marketplaces. So, you know, critics have been saying that NFTs are a fad for years now. Um, they, they've been wrong. They'll continue to be wrong. You know, it's kind of like Peter Schiff saying that Bitcoin is not going to go anywhere. You know, he just keeps saying it every year and he just keeps getting more and more wrong every year. We need our own Peter Schiff of, uh, of NFTs, but that, yeah, that's the way I feel about it is. These people coming in learning about NFTs for the first time and deciding it's a fad is kind of ridiculous for the people who've been doing this for for years and have seen these cycles before.
13: I think uh, there's a lot of conflation between NFT, the technology, and the art that uses NFT, the, the, the technology of it. And when people talk about NFTs, they often think, oh, I'm talking about the art itself, but they're not. There are two different things. You have the art that is used to be exclusively, um, that was digital and exclusively like impossible to verify, impossible to own outright. Um, it, there was this disconnect between the traditional physical art world and the digital art space, which digital artists are artists. Like, I don't even like saying digital art because it's not accurate. And what NFTs and this technology allowed these artists to achieve is sovereignty is value is ownership is um is scarcity and i think that that in and of itself is what makes this space so important and also what will let it stand the test of time i mean just like the internet like it wasn't just an email machine it wasn't just you know what it initially started started out to be and
14: so will this you know we worked with with pack the, the collection I thought was was fascinating and very unique because it really made use of the, the digital medium. And I think honestly, the, you know, the, the artists creating right now squarely belong in the canon of art history, in my opinion, because society is increasingly digital. We increasingly spend our lives on the internet and art is a reflection of society. So it makes sense that we finally have an art that's a reflection of our, our current time. I, I think the Pax Sotheby's drop is a great example of that where Pack did something fascinating with, with his fungible edition that converted into NFTs. You, know, you would never be able to do that in the physical art world. I mean, he's using this medium in a fascinating new way. And it also really speaks to the the depth of this medium. I, I really like to compare the the invention of NFTs to the invention of the video camera. You know, the video camera allows you to do stuff that you can't do with just a normal play. That's what gives it longevity. You know, that's why movies are, are such an amazing medium... Because of the depth that they offer. NFTs are the exact same way. You know, I, I really think that we're just scratching the surface of, of what you can do artistically with NFTs. And uh, you know, the, the artists right now who are the NFT pioneers, they're the ones who in the future, people are going to look back and give them credit for you know, paving the way the same way that you know, people were paving the way for incredible films in the, the 20s and the 30s. But yeah, Nifty Gateway just passed $300 million in lifetime sales which is a number we're just super, super proud of. And we only launched about a year and two months ago. Um, and it just shows the incredible pace at in which the space is growing. And Dapper Labs' is project top shot, which I think is the highest vol- total lifetime volume of any project. I'm not quite sure, but you know, I think it only has around... Five hundred fifty million or six hundred million, somewhere in that ballpark. And Nifty has, you know, around fifty percent of that, and they were just raising money at a seven and a half billion dollar valuation. So, yeah, I mean, here at Nifty, like, we're just really excited about empowering artists, and like, I think the numbers show kind of what we've been able to accomplish in the first year.
13: A lot of people have made themselves out to be villains in this space, um, being like anti-NFT, and more specifically on the anti on the environmental aspect of it, in the sense that. You know, when that website came out that said this is how much you're destroying the 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 planet for minting this one piece of artwork, you know, information came out that that was completely Photoshop, completely inaccurate. There's no real way to calculate per per minting impact on on uh, on the planet because Ethereum network's always running at capacity the way that proof of work works, so no matter if there's zero transactions or a million transactions, it's going to have the same impact. And that's not to say that proof of work is good because it's not like you're not going to find proof of work apologists out there, but proof of stake and layer two and, you know, the next evolution of Ethereum will solve that problem. So when we talk about the concern of, of, of the environment in this space now, the focus should not be on the artists themselves that are minting. It shouldn't be anti NFT. It should be proactive towards evolving us to layer two and and um, and the next evolution of Ethereum.
14: Well, Nifty is a, a bit of a unique platform um, where you know we're a, we're a, a, a custody platform, so most of our our bids and transactions already happen off chain. Um, you know, which which minimizes the amount of time that we spend interacting with the blockchain. But we're definitely working on our own solutions. We have a, a minting system that's going to reduce the amount of block space we use by around 99%, which has uh, you know, been tricky for us to develop technologically. We've hit some hurdles, but you know, we're still confident that uh, you know, we'll be able to deploy that. We've also committed to going carbon negative. So we're actually offsetting all of our blockchain usage by 2x. Um, we did the math, and it was something that we could afford, and we thought it would be a you know a responsible thing to do so yeah whenever you use nifty gateway you 're actually removing or you're you're facilitating carbon removal from the the atmosphere um, so we're really proud of uh of being able to do that and yeah I, I mean I think the transition to proof of stake is coming. you know everyone in the ethereum community is extremely dedicated to making this happen. Um, you know, I, I honestly i don't I don't think Ethereum gets enough credit. It's not as if people are sitting here saying, "Well, yeah, this is a problem, but we can just let it fester." People are saying, "No, no, no, we have to solve this," and we're working hard to solve it. And yeah, I would also add, I think a lot of the arguments, especially the environmental ones, like instead of a lot of the nuance. You know, Bitcoin has a lot of functionality that incentivizes research and development into clean energy and can kind of used you know, electricity to generate money, which helps kind of serve as a battery. And, you know, I think a lot of the arguments are kind of Malthusian, which, you know, they're saying like electricity usage is bad, which is just something I would fundamentally reject. Like, I think clean energy is coming. Like consumption is not unethical in my opinion. Electricity use is not unethical. So, you know, it's it's a bit of a different viewpoint, but, you know, for the people who really believe in blockchain technology, like ourselves, you know, I mean, the electricity use is worth it. Like, And yeah, like Duncan said, everyone in Ethereum is kind of working really hard to transition away from proof of work because it's inefficient, but you know, like things, things take energy. Great word. Malthusian. I feel like, yeah, that a lot of the critics are, are pretty Malthusian. At at, at Nifty, it's tough for me to think of something that a bunch of people are requesting, like definitely support for DAOs is a really big one. You know, like we are really always focused on serving our community and I, I don't know. Can you think of anything, Duncan? Yeah. I mean, I I would say the biggest thing I've noticed is just the number of people who want to make NFTs. That seems to be like the the number one request we get. And, uh, you know, I've actually like almost stopped, just totally stopped responding to, to people who ask about that, you know, like four months ago. Four months ago, we would have welcomed a lot of these people and it would have been insane to be like, oh, this person is making an NFT or like this celebrity. But now it just feels like a deluge. And it feels like everyone is like, you know, moving way too fast and not spending enough time learning about NFTs before they're making them. So yeah, it's, it seems to me like I would say the number one thing we hear is like, people just want to launch more NFTs and everyone just wants to sort of like get in on the the craze. Uh, which, you know, like has its advantages and, and disadvantages for the space.
5: For sure. Well, the deluge. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> there is massive foam for NFTs
4: right now. I will certainly say that. My mom even knows, wants to create one just for herself. <laughs> so I totally yeah, agree.
14: We, <laughs> we, get, we get artists who are, you know, maybe musicians who email us and they're like, hey guys, I you know, we need to get on the phone right now. I need to launch my NFT within the next week before the the hype dies down. And we're we're just thinking, you know, like, look, if that's your attitude, like you're probably not going to have a, you know, that's not a a great attitude for long-term success in the NFT space. Like you should be thinking about it as like a five-year, 10-year vocation.
13: Also to that point, just, you know, really quickly, I, you know, we often talk about the money and the value of NFTs and secondary markets and what things sell for, but um, money... Rises and falls, bull bear markets all the time. And what's going to make this space stay and last is the cultural storytelling that we're going to do about the artists, about the space, the things that are going on within it. And, you know, I, I, I often talk about like you know, people watch TV because they want to escape from the world. And what if we had shows and movies and film that normalize the use of crypto and, and, and blockchains and collecting art as NFTs, people wouldn't see it as like this foreign thing that they have to like onboard onto. It would be like, oh, this is just a normal thing. I'm paying for coffee with ETH. And it's through, I think, the, the media and what people watch in their free time that will push this space
14: forward and make it last. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that uh, February, and March were like c- completely insane in, in NFT land. And honestly, at least on Nifty Gateway, I think we saw a lot of new buyers who uh, had a pretty speculative approach. And we, you know, a, fo- a major focus of ours now is just trying to educate people that, uh, you know, you, when you buy an NFT, you should really have some a- attachment to it. If you're if you're just doing it with the the sole purpose of making money, then you're probably not going to have a good time and you're, you're probably not going to make much money either, which is kind of like a, an ultimate, you know, kind of an irony. So we really try and tell people to shy away from that almost as much for their own good as for, you know, the health of the ecosystem and the health of the platform. So, I, you know, I think what we'll see this year is more of a, a leveling off and a, a steady growth, which I think, frankly, is what exactly what the NFT space needs you know, like the the type of growth we saw in February and March, it's awesome to see so many people get in, interested in NFTs. But I feel like that growth can, it can be sort of destabilizing. And, you know, if, if it's not healthy growth, then, you know, maybe it's, it's not good for the long term of the ecosystem. So I predict we'll see a lot more healthy growth in uh, the rest of 2021, which is exactly what NFTs need.
3: So if there was one panel that was probably my favorite of the day, it would have been this one, right? It was uh, the Olaf Carlson Wee Polychain Capital panel. Um, And and Olaf has kind of a, uh, you know, I would say he's kind of popular in the space. You know, he was one of the first Coinbase employees. And, uh, he also has, you know, invested in a lot of different projects and and companies. Um, so there's that, um, he's talked a lot about NFTs. So he's definitely right about a lot of different stuff, right? So he definitely can provide you with a lot of insights with where the space is going, especially the crypto space, um, so um, it's it's no surprise that he has a panel here this time and he talks about a lot of different things uh, this year. And so I think it's very important to listen to what he has to say, because, you know, he kind of he's kind of telling you what's up and coming um, these next couple of years um, in the Ethereum space and what to look out for. So if, if you're somebody like me who likes to know what's on the cutting edge and what what to kind of go dive into and to kind of what to explore as to what's going to be the next big thing in the crypto space. Um, he's basically giving you a primer of what those things are. Um, mm-hmm. Now, doesn't mean that he's always right. <laughs> right. He has, he has whiffed on a, on a, on some major things, you know, Tezos being one of them. Right. That was, that was one that he definitely whiffed on because even though it's up in value, I mean everything's goes up with Bitcoin. But you know, if you look at one of his major mistakes, it was Tezos. You know, Polychain Capital invested a lot into Tezos, and they missed big time with that blockchain. So it's not that he's always right, but um, he he has has some major he has some made some major mistakes. But I will say. This is an interesting panel, nonetheless, and he has some he has some really interesting insights, and I would definitely definitely listen to it because it's uh, pretty fascinating. So take a listen. Mm-hmm.
15: this year so far has been pretty crazy. Um, I think we, we did something like 22 deals in the first quarter, um, which is a pretty fast pace, um, but it's a very exciting time to be an investor in crypto. Average size there is probably around 10 million. People think of capital raising as um, business success um, when it's not at all. So it raising capital does not help you build a successful product. Um, it helps you put fuel on the fire for growth. It helps you recruit people and hire. It does not help you find kind of product market fit. And if you're an early stage startup, that's all you're trying to do is find product market fit. Um, so I would think carefully about how much capital do I really need to raise? And especially for early stage deals, you should be massively over-optimizing for partners that can help you find product market fit than partners who can do anything else for you. So if they don't deeply understand the market you're building in, deeply understand the product you're building, they're not a good fit as an investor. Um, When you get to later stage and you're just looking for growth capital, you're no longer concerned about um, if the product has a good fit in the market. You know, you're maybe looking for a slightly different type of investor, Um, But I think at that early stage, choosing the right partners and also recognizing um, that capital is not going to really solve your problems. um, Those are two of the big mistakes I see. You know, I remember when Dogecoin launched, um, I used to hang out in the Dogecoin subreddit. I'm pretty sure I've tipped in the Dogecoin subreddit um, 100,000 Doge on individual comments back in the day. Um, kind of classic, just classic uh, stuff. I still don't know where my old Dogecoin wallet is. I'll try to dig it up uh, one of these days. But yeah, I, I think um, I think it's fascinating. It, it's very much sitting at the intersection of kind of influencers and social media with cryptocurrency. Um, I think that there's some of the similar patterns you saw with GameStop, right? Um, Which is that it's a super, super online grassroots meme, social media influencer driven, um, driven thing. And I think what we're learning with both GameStop and Dogecoin is never, ever underestimate that. I'm really excited about DAOs. Um, I have been for many years. So sometimes I feel like a broken record with this. But the ability for global capital coordination um, and allocation based on just pseudonymous people from around the entire Internet is absolutely fascinating to me. Um, The capital coordination we see in DeFi yield farming and in ICOs, it's actually bigger than IPOs. I think a lot of people don't realize that just the sheer magnitude is already bigger than most IPOs. Um, and it happens a lot faster. The IPO process is easily a six-month process. Um, you can do sort of the announcement tweet for your app and coordinate $100 million of capital, often three weeks later. It's it's a very fast process. It's extremely efficient. Um, and the amount of capital these DAOs are managing is it's just growing exponentially there's no other way to put it um if you look at the value held in these defi contracts one year ago it was 1 billion dollars today it it has, has crossed 75 billion dollars that's 75x growth in one year um, now the crypto bull market is happening but you know the crypto bull market is only ethereum is less you know it's it's maybe 2 3 times Um, the previous all-time high. Bitcoin also sort of two, three times the previous all-time high. Um, Some of these categories are growing a lot faster than that. Um, So DAOs also are managing massive, massive treasuries. Um, Some of these DAO treasuries are in the multi-multi-billion dollars range, um, and yet we don't really have very good mechanisms to manage that capital or make decisions on how to efficiently allocate that capital. I know this as a multi 1000000000 dollar asset allocator myself. It's a very complicated process. And um, if you just sort of are very passive about it, you're not going to do a good job. So to me, the the growth of DAOs is never going to stop. The scope of applications that DAOs are managing is going to expand dramatically with the launch of new, more um you know, basically more scalable platforms and platforms that allow developers to express more complicated logic. So things like Definity, things like Polkadot that are already live, um, these are going to enable new types of applications that look and feel a, li- a little bit more like traditional web apps than just um, kind of mathematical financial apps the way we see in Defi and define Ethereum today. Um, and you're going to have DAOs managing those types of applications. So you're not just going to have DAOs managing lending books, uh, market making algorithms and things like that. You're also going to have DAOs managing things that look and feel like websites, web applications, um, file storage applications, things like that. And I think that that DAO category to me, it's affected just a new type of um, you know, almost I don't want to call it a legal entity because it's not. But, you know, the concept of LLCs and C-Corps, they just had to be invented someday. Um, but they were sort of provisioned by the jurisdictional apparatus that they're they're built on. Right. You sort of need to go get permission to do that. Um, in the context of DAOs, you can just use software to do it. So I think we're going to see more... Um, more progress in sort of voting and governance systems around DAO based capital, um, as well as iterations on the actual sort of DAO, if you again want to call it kind of corporate governance model. Um, I think we're going to see amazing experimentation there. Um, and I think the sheer amount of capital here is going to continue to grow. Like, it's, I, I think we're at 75 billion um, today. This, this number is going to go to a trillion, um, you know, in a pretty short time horizon in my mind. Um, And I do think that these Dow Treasuries are going to become very, very large. Like, they're going to become bigger than the largest crypto funds. Um, And they're going to be more well-capitalized, actually, than most big for-profit crypto businesses. Um, You know, I'm pretty sure that Uniswap has more kind of capital at hand than Coinbase, right? Um, The difference is it's not being allocated very efficiently. Um, you know a lot of these centralized businesses they may be a little bit old and clunky but at the end of the day they do know how to spend money at growth right they know how to do paid marketing um, for positive um, cost benefit customer acquisition Um, they know how to hire business development people they know how to do integrations I think these DAOs are struggling to figure out how to allocate money Um, basically DAOs know how to pay developers they'll say okay there's two or three core devs let's pay them um, but that's pretty basic. I think we need to go way beyond that. Um, and I think that we're going to see more and more very experimental models like for-profit companies competing for that DAO-based capital to basically act as a contractor for the DAO. Um, so then you can sort of emulate some of the benefits of a for-profit company. But the purse strings and and core capital still sits with those token holders in that DAO model. So this is one category that I just think it's exploding um, people do talk about it, but I don't think people realize how fast this is moving and how much it's going to continue to grow over the next couple of years um, and how big of a paradigm shift this is. I mean, this yeah. is a what, what new native to the Internet. It's, it's absolutely mind boggling um, to me. It's like the second big breakthrough after basically digital cash that, yeah. that has come out of the whole blockchain space. So people have been asking me if I'm worried about regulatory actions in the cryptocurrency space for 10 years now. Um, and listen, it will influence outcomes. That is not going to be the thing that makes or breaks this. It is a totally global thing. It's an incredibly distributed um, global community um, that's not based in any specific geography. Um, companies that are you know located with headquarters in one area um, service uh, users globally. Um, these networks really are peer-to-peer networks. You can shut down all the nodes in one country, and the whole thing will continue to operate normally for the rest of the world. So I, you know, I think it's um, basically impossible to stop at this point. Um, you're also seeing an effect where. As we get more and more and more holders of cryptocurrency, it becomes less and less and less politically tenable to punish those holders. Um, So I don't know if you remember a while back, there were politicians that were coming out anti Uber um, and, you know, enough of their constituency used Uber that it was sort of politically untenable. People said, what the hell? I use this app every day. I love this app. How are you going to ban this? And it it was sort of politically untenable now that, you know, every fourth person owns Dogecoin, um, you know, trying to ban cryptocurrency or, or, or make negative laws around cryptocurrency, it's going to become politically harder and harder and harder. Um, And like I said, there's a lot of jurisdictional competition here. Um, You know, my message to American regulators would be that the next Silicon Valley does not have to be in California. It might be in Beijing. Right. Um, And it's really ours to lose. um, You know, so to me, you know, if I was a U.S. regulator, I would not be thinking about crypto i would be thinking about china um and if you if you have the view that this is the next big global mega trend and the largest generational wealth shift uh wealth shift of our era um both things i believe um you cannot lose it's not an option it's it's literally like losing the internet yeah it's definitely not a zero-sum game uh to me you know with globe like if if we really th- look forward you know Many years, ten years, and the global financial system is operating on blockchain-based substrate. Um, You know, majority of the world has exposure to cryptocurrency assets. Every other type of asset class is issued and settled on the blockchain, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think basically everybody wins, minus you know a small cabal of a couple thousand people that basically sit at the fiat money printer, right? (laughs) um so it's there there is a kind of um you know i i don't see a way that um people in general lose i, I think people in general massively win with crypto um like regular average people so you know i i i think that this is going to be a movement that is very hard to stop um and pretty soon will be politically very hard to be against um but i yeah i think Um, I, I do think that there's a lot of work to do, uh, by entrepreneurs and builders in this space to both scale, kind of the core technology. Um, you know, we haven't had a ton of improvements in sort of the core tech layer, um, since 2017. I think I, I should speak for myself. I think it's gone a little slower than I would have hoped. Um, and on top of that, we need better UX and abstractions for the end users. Um, So that regular people can really be onboarded to these applications that today are actually really hard to use. The, The remarkable thing is the amount of traction these applications have despite the bad user experience. And so that to me makes me even more bullish on the whole category, because if we can just unlock some simple, better UI That alone will 10x this. Like there's massive pent up demand that can't get over the user experience hurdles, which, in the scheme of things, are I think the easiest hurdles to get over. It's just better design, uh, better abstractions. You know, slowly onboarding users to um, you know naming systems instead of just raw public keys and things like that. Um, So I I think that. You know, I feel like I've maybe been saying this for a couple years, um, but I, I think we're a couple years out um, from this feeling easier. I think the adoption has been faster than I anticipated, given how crude most of the interfaces are today. Kind of information flow in crypto um, is an incredibly broken, <laughs> fragmented uh, system. So every project has its own sort of bespoke channels, whether that's you know custom forums, telegram rooms, like a subreddit, um, just a community of Twitter people that tweeted each other all the time. Um, frankly, there's no good system. Um, information flow in crypto is, is, I think, pretty obfuscated. Like there's not a lot of quote official sources. I actually really like that there's not, a, you know, you can't just open up the New York Times for crypto. Um, And I actually quite like that. Right. There's no sort of authoritative source, um, but it does mean you need to put in a little bit more hard work to find real, uh, real flows of information. Um, But if you pick an individual product, you go to the website, they'll usually link to some of the official forums. From there, you can get linked to some of the unofficial um, chats and forums, discord rooms and everything. Um, And you just have to put in a little bit of time, uh, sifting through some information. But if you sort of ambiently hang out there, you can learn a lot about these projects pretty quickly. Um, A lot of these projects airdrop, right? They're they're trying to actually decentralize that DAO governance and ownership. Um, They do that through liquidity mining or straight airdrops to the end users. Um, So, you know, DFINITY, I think, is about to do basically the largest airdrop um, ever in crypto. I think it's going to be worth billions of dollars. Um, which is remarkable, Um, some, you know, previous airdrops have also sort of instantly bootstrapped this massive distributed community um, that can all sort of participate in that DAO governance. What I'm very excited about now um, is a lot of the people that really got into this um, more so in the last year or so, particularly in kind of the DeFi and on-chain participation category. Um, so there are groups out there like eGirl Capital, for example, that are a very interesting model, sort of a loose Dow-like structure. Um, it's not super formal, but it's all pseudonymous, um, people that are sort of um, deeply in the decentralized finance world um, and are you know participating in venture rounds alongside groups like Polychain. Um, and I do think that's actually the way this is going to go over time, is more... Um, you know, dial style capital coordination. I think over time, those types of groups um, will take over uh, relative to more traditional legal structures like poly chain. Um, it's going to be slow, uh, but I do think that's the direction we're headed. And a lot of the people that um, have really found a place for themselves through this sort of like um, 2018, 19, uh, 20 cycle, um, I'm really interested in their perspective because they, they have a little bit of a different perspective than the sort of OG 2011 crowd. Um, and I think it's it's fascinating to follow them and um, track the way they think about the market and the technology. Yeah, I mean, I I think um, there's it, it's it's really the founders of the, the, um, most technically ambitious protocols that I think I admire the most. It's people that, you know, these are like Juan Benet of Filecoin, Dominic Williams of Divinity, Gavin Wood of Polkadot. You know, I, I read the technical specifications for these projects years ago and, uh, the, you know, these are three, four years of development, uh, to get these projects live And then it's going to be another two, three, four years um, to get real uh, adoption and and growth. So these these entrepreneurs are hardcore engineers embarking on like a 10 year path that's building, I think, the most ambitious software ever built. I think it's that simple. Um, So those are some of the folks I, I admire the most. Um, there's a lot of builders like that in DeFi. The cycles in DeFi are a little bit faster. Um, the scope of those technology projects are a, a little bit more limited, um, but there's a lot of builders in DeFi um, that, that are similar, right? They're just taking on hugely ambitious projects, rebuilding the lo- global financial system from the ground up. So for me, it's all the builders. Um, people like me that are investors, um, to me, are in a second tier, right? Um, I'm more a fan of the builders um, and, you know, I'm just really happy to be able to partner with with them on all the sorts of ambitious projects that, that they're working on.
16: Uh, let's talk about Coinbase briefly. You know, you might have heard this whole thing with their uh, IPO recently and or their direct listing, I should say. Um, it seems to have gone off pretty well. But I mean, you know, surely, you know, some stuff behind the scenes. You had a lot of shares. you were the first employee there. So was there any surprises in that process or what did you make of the whole, you know, the way it went down?
15: So um, what I'll say is this. I think that if Coinbase would have gone public on Coinbase, and what I mean by that is done a USDC style model where in order to trade on Coinbase, we'd need to go through KYC. Um, But once you acquire those Coinbase shares, um, they would be represented as ERC-20 tokens, and could be transferred out into the wild and wonderful world of DeFi um, and used as collateral and pools. Um, you could get leverage on it, all those sorts of things for regular retail users. And then you could redeem those ERC-20 tokens uh, back at Coinbase to get, quote, you know real shares back, right? Um, this is sort of the way USDC works um, with US dollars, right? If they would have done a similar model to that and actually conducted the IPO on the Coinbase platform and had coin trading limited to Coinbase. Funnily enough, I think that a lot of institutional folks would not have participated in the same way that they likely have participated in the more traditional Coinbase listing process. I also think Coinbase would be valued at over double what it is um, if they would have gone that route. Um, And I think it would be really exciting to see this tokenized equity, again, with the USDC style compliant model out in the wild in DeFi, um, because it would have represented a really alternative type of asset to incorporate into all these DeFi apps and Dow treasuries and things like that. And like I said before, these Dow treasuries are massive pools of capital. Um, If you you see these Dow treasuries that have maybe um, two, three, four, five or more billion dollars saying, let's allocate 10% of this to Coinbase because it represents a sort of um, little bit safer risk reward profile than, than actual cryptocurrencies, I think, in many ways. Um, that, you know, is a huge bid on the Coinbase price that I do think is starting to um, actually rival the size that you'd see in traditional public markets. Um, And traditional buyers of these IPO uh, stocks. So I, you know, that would have been the more crypto native path. Um, It's the path that I would have liked, um, I think. Um, I do get the feeling that somebody had to sort of go through the front door for the industry a little bit because it really is the first major IPO, right? In yeah. the
16: but, but, look, it's funny you say that because um, I spoke to Fred Urson, the uh, co- uh, co-founder of Coinbase, uh, about a year ago, and he said that Coinbase was spiritually built to do what you described. So why didn't they? So it's simply a matter of the, um, the market was so hot they had to do it or the regulators wouldn't play along
15: or what's, you know, what happened? To tell the truth, I don't have a lot of insight on to the nature of why the decision went the way it did.
3: hilarious and, and and this you know this is not me getting, getting upset with you know decrypt or you know with anybody in, in the media space here in the crypto or bitcoin space this is just me you know just expressing frustration right um and and i say this all the time and y'all hear me say this all the time and this is this is the main reason why thriller premium exists the main absolute reason why we exist if we could do this free i would it, the only reason we do it premium is because we have to we have to sustain this llc that way right we have to conduct that business that way unfortunately we have to pay taxes <laughs> it's just the way it goes right we 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 live under the the state laws of Texas, right? While abiding citizen here, but with all that being said, you know I say this time and time again. This is the exact same thing I said when when Coinbase launched that dumb IPO or DPO, whatever they want to call that stupid thing that they launched, you know. We released coverage, right? And and one of the main things that I said when that got released, and it was it was so it was so dumb. It was it was really dumb, right? And, and I, I said at the time, I was like, "This is a big misstep for Coinbase and and a misstep for the entire." Bitcoin and crypto industry. Take a listen to what I said at the time. Here, I'll I'll kind of read you the tweet. I said, honestly, Coinbase, as the biggest crypto exchange, should have at least hybrid ICO'd. Debuted the new way of capital formation. Set the bar higher. This direct listing was great for the space, don't get me wrong, but it was a missed opportunity by Brian Armstrong and team. And I think that is true. I think they took the easy way out. I mean, let's be honest. They're like an 800-pound gorilla in the crypto space. They're fully compliant. They're one of the most trusted among institutional investors. When the U.S. government looks to them, they see a very good, honest exchange. They could have gotten anything they wanted out of Wall Street, um, they could have set the, the the precedent for how to roll out a company in crypto and Bitcoin going forward. Um, they, they could have done a lot of things for the space um, as far as creating like a hybrid ICO or, or doing something what Exodus is doing now or, or or maybe offering their own coin token on their own exchange or doing it a hundred different ways, right? Stuff that we can't even think about, or maybe airdropping it, very similar to what Uniswap is doing. Um, Who knows what the ideas they could have come up with. There could have been a a lot of different ways they could have done it. Um, What I'm trying to say is there was innovation there for them to go out and do. But instead, what they tried to do is they tried to take the easy way out And they went ahead and said, you know what? We're just going to follow the rules like everybody else does and be a regular, boring financial company. And it sounds like Olaf knew exactly what I was trying to interpret there when I said that back on April 15th, right? And I absolutely love that he said that right there. And so it really frustrates the crap out of me, you know, When I hear Jeff Roberts of Decrypt, who's who's the editor, executive editor at that of Decrypt, ask him that damn question. Because I'm like, bro, where were you on the 15th of April with that damn post on the front page of Decrypt? Why weren't you posting that on the front page of Decrypt? Why was I the only lone wolf (laughs) In the entire crypto and Bitcoin space posting that this is why this is why regular people do not trust the media anymore. It's entirely frustrating to see this happen over and over and over again. It's like, bro, why didn't you bring this up on the 15th of April? Why didn't you say specifically that, hey. Coinbase, you drop the ball for the entire industry. Why didn't you put them on blast? You have a media publication, put them on blast. Why does it take little old car to do it? <laughs> Why does it always have to be David versus Goliath all the time? Right? Why can't it just be Goliath versus Goliath? I don't understand that. Should it shouldn't have to be like that? It's like man up, do it. You have the you have the media to do it, do it. Okay, that's enough preaching for, for today. But you know, I, I love the crypt. I think they're the best out there. I really do. Have a lot of respect for what they're building. And that's why I hold them to a higher standard. You know, I think they're the best. I, I really think they're the best. They're cut above Coinbase, or I'm sorry, CoinDesk. They're they're cut above, you know, the block and everything else out there. Um, I think they're I think they're at the top, but they need to really stick to making sure they hold everybody else accountable. And and that's their people that they directly are friends with and they directly take money from. I'm sorry. It has to be done. Doesn't matter. It's hard, but you have to hold that line. Accountability, you know, so what they're not giving you advertising too bad, <laughs> you know, This is why I don't accept any advertisements, because it's a conflict of interest. It sucks. Less revenue, but it's the only way to sustain. It's the only way to sustain. Okay, the last conversation is with Coinbase, and it's a good one. They talk about a lot of stuff, and it's a good good one to listen to. Take a listen.
0: and perhaps loudest and clearest is that uh, there's going to be a lot of conversation about crypto in Washington and at the SEC over the next four years. And we welcome that conversation. I have been very public and Coinbase as a company has been very public about the need for greater clarity on a number of key issues that the industry is facing. And so if this morning's discussion between ranking member McHenry and Chairman Gensler uh, is, is a sign of things to come in terms of more focus and attention on those issues, we're all for it.
16: Yeah, because I spoke to Olaf Carlson Wee earlier, the CEO of uh, Polychain, and he was making the point with the rise of DAOs that if Washington doesn't get his act together, I mean, this stuff is just going to be distributed somewhere else. Or it could be in Beijing or Singapore or Switzerland. Um, you know, Do you think that, that Washington is catching up?
0: Well, I think Washington is um, is certainly paying attention. And I think one of the issues or one of the things that they're paying most attention to is the fact that crypto innovation is happening all over the world, not just in financial capitals like London and Singapore and others, but in little towns where developers with a great idea are now able to see their innovations get out to a wide, even a global audience. And so if you know that decentralization that's just native to crypto helps push uh, uh, traditional leaders when it comes to regulation or anything else to, to, to think more creatively and expansively about how to strike the right balance, I think it's a great thing. And the basic idea behind the transparency report is to share not just with our our users, uh, but with the world at large, you know, the extent to which uh, law enforcement here in the United States and around the world um, makes formal requests for customer information from Coinbase. It's become now, uh, I think, more standard in the tech industry uh, to share that type of information. Um, You see that from, for example, the Googles and Facebooks of the world uh, uh, and have now for, for some time. I thought it was very important that Coinbase lead the way in bringing that same um, accountability uh, in crypto. And so that's why we moved to put those put those facts and figures out as for what it means, what what those what those numbers actually tell us. I think what it tells us is that law enforcement is paying attention as well to what's happening in crypto. And, um, you know, we're seeing uh, we're seeing a greater interest in, uh, among law enforcement agencies globally in this type of information at the same time as the United States continues to lead in terms of the absolute numbers. So I think it's just it's a good way for us to prompt a conversation about you know how companies like Coinbase should respond appropriately to these measures. And, um, you know, if we if we encourage that conversation, I think we'll have made a contribution.
16: Subpoena comes on your door. Are you just saying, yes, 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 rubber, rubber stamp? Or are you pushing back? Are
2: you going to tell us?
0: No, we, we very much push. Back, You know, when we are served with um, any kind of request, uh, informal or formal, um, our team's first response is to assess whether or not that request is being made to lawful authority. Uh, If the answer to that question is no, that's the end of the conversation. The answer to that question is, yes, there is lawful process being served. We then work to evaluate what what information is called for in response to that request and what information is not. So we very much focus on scoping our responses so that we provide whatever is compelled by law, but no more than that. You know, we, we say in our transparency report that you know, we're eager to share more information about how often we um, um, respond to these things and provide more information more generally about our, um, our inbound. And, and uh, I fully expect that we will do that in the coming months.
16: OK, yeah, I think a lot of people like to hear about that, because I know uh, despite their controversial reputation, Twitter and Apple and Google have done a lot for civil liberties. And I know some are calling on the crypto community to do the same. So we might expect to see you guys taking a stand at some point or if you, it sounds like you are already.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think the calls are, are are legitimate. And I think that you know one of the most important things we can do uh, as as a leader in crypto is is is, is, to, is to share our experience and talk about our practices, and that's one of the reasons why we kicked off the transparency report. It's why we're going to see more information in that report, in the in the reports to come. But we've now really, uh, I, I think, seen that there is tremendous market appetite and demand for dozens, hundreds, perhaps even thousands or tens of thousands of coins. Looking ahead, and so we want to be the platform that offers consumers that choice. Uh, of what coins they can purchase and where. Now to do that in a, in a, in a compliant way, we need to follow uh, the guidelines of the countries in which we operate here in the United States. It's very important that we evaluate uh, you know, whether assets meet our standards, uh, not only legally, but also in terms of our compliance and security requirements. And so we've actually been publishing more and more information to potential or actual asset issuers about what requirements they need to meet in order to come onto Coinbase as a platform, and um, hopefully in that way we can encourage them to do that in, in in a very responsible way.
16: Speaking with Olaf earlier, who was Coinbase's first employee, he said he was kind of disappointed you guys didn't list, you know, Coinbase tokens on on Coinbase where people could go redeem them somewhere for regular shares. And I know Fred, you know, your co-founder wanted to do that. And I think Brian did too, but you didn't. Um but you know, also sounds like someone had to take one for the team and just kind of get a public listing out the door. But you know, so when is Coinbase gonna offer a token of its own? Will that happen this year or next year?
0: Yeah, I get the disappointment. And, and candidly, you know, there are a lot of us uh, at Coinbase that are, are, are disappointed that we weren't able to, to offer uh, that token as part of our transition to life as a public company. That said, um, that that ideal very much remains a priority for us i can't say when we will ultimately be able to to do that Um, there are significant technical and regulatory hurdles that we still need to overcome but it's it's still a dream that lives and uh, you know we're going to keep working at it until we're able to do it
3: first coinbase is going to launch their own coin token you see that's what i'm saying like you know people people think that just because you complain you know in a box you know people don't hear you or you know you can complain on twitter people don't see you um i don't believe that to be true you know, I I think you put your content out there; it speaks for itself. People may listen, people may share. You never know who's actually listening to you, right? Um, believe it or not, um, you know, I have some people who are subscribed that I, I I'm completely shocked that they're subscribed. I just I just cannot believe it. I'm like, wow, these are people that I respect in the industry. I would never never believe that they actually listen to an old car here from Austin, Texas. I'm like, wow. That just humbles the shit out of me. But they do. And and I I take it upon myself to make sure that I that I hold that standard of delivering the best content, you know, the most insightful news, the most curated news, and, and try to deliver it on time and try to de- deliver it in a timely fashion to y'all. And you know, and if, if I have conviction with what I'm saying, I'm gonna say it. And so when I said that at the time about Coinbase and how they had a misstep. I really believed in it. And it's good to hear Coinbase understand how wrong that was. And it's good to hear Olaf also chime in about that. And it's finally good to hear other media companies finally for, finally say, oh, yeah, it, it was wrong. You guys should have done that. And it's like, should have said that at the time, bro. But, you know, that's what this whole space does, dude. It's what frustrates the crap out of me about this space is no one has a spine, bro. Everybody's so focused on that fiat, man, on that dirty fiat. No one's no one's no one's clamoring for like, you know, conviction or, or for integrity, you know, and it really like, man, bro, like Satoshi would be ashamed. <laughs> you know, that's why I'm like, gosh, you just need a little more integrity in this space. And that's all we try to do here on Thriller Premium is just bring a little bit more integrity to, to what we call, you know, news coverage, Bitcoin coverage, crypto coverage, even Ethereal Summit coverage. Okay. So that was uh, day one of our ethereal summit coverage. Um, it was like over 10 hours. We literally dwindled it down to like just over two hours. I saved y'all a lot of time. <laughs> we're going to share this out to free uh, for free to everybody. So I-, I think it's I think it's only right because there's a lot of Ethereum heads out there that want to hear this. Um, we're going to do a day two tomorrow. So I've already started editing that. There's there's a lot of good stuff in there, too. Um, it's just a lot of work to edit it down, you know, uh, get out the good stuff, uh, just because there's so much. And I want to make sure just get it down to the good stuff. So that way you guys can digest it. And really don't have to spend time listening to 10 hours of stuff that really has no bearing on anything, right? Because uh, who has time for that? Okay. A lot of stuff this week, but we have a lot of stuff to cover in the Bitcoin space, and I promise we're gonna to get to that here on Tuesday. We just gotta hang tight and try to release it tomorrow. We'll see, but
2: I'll see you next time.